Thanks very much and good afternoon ladies and gents. Thanks for staying. Got the graveyard shift. Um, I'm just thinking back of the comment the governor made a bit earlier uh, this morning about having a shot of Uzo, um, which I think is quite relevant linked to my surname. So I'm hoping all of you have had your shots of Uzo for this very contentious discussion, um, which really is, is something that's, that's contentious not just in South Africa, but in all international circles. Um, so we annually um, attend a, a trading uh, technology conference in the UK. And this, as you can imagine, was a topic that was uh, very passionately discussed there this year again for the third year in a row. Um, and the regulators in that environment um, is still really grappling with this concept as well as all the market participants. And it's something that's not just being grappled with in the UK and in Europe, but also in the US in terms of how do we respond to this concept of high frequency trading and how do the markets react and how do we ensure fair and equal marketplaces. Um, so it really is an interesting discussion and I hope you enjoy um, some of the concepts that uh, we've put together. This presentation was really just um, put together in the context of the JSC's cash equities market. As you're aware, we run six marketplaces, so two cash markets, the equities market and the bond market, um, and four derivatives markets, uh, equity derivatives, commodity derivatives, currencies, and interest rate derivatives. Um, and so I really felt that the, the statistics and the history and everything is, is more relevant when including it within the context of the cash equities market, because it's our marketplace that's been around for the longest. Um, it's got the fastest trading technology um, and it's really got deep liquid uh, pools where we have seen the use of technology uh, growing significantly and algorithmic trading being very prevalent in that environment. So just bear that in mind when I go through the slides um, that it really relates mainly to cash equities. Um, and so any discussion about uh, high frequency trading, I'm just looking for this, sorry. Um, a good place to start is just looking back into history of how the markets have evolved. Um, so the JSE was established in 1887, which is now 128 years ago. And I think it's very important to also bear in mind that 108 of those years we had open outcry system in place. So we had a lot of experience with uh, dealing with that type of environment, which is what I've displayed on the slides. Um, and in that environment, it was really about how fast you can, you can project your voice in terms of getting your trades executed, so the latency of your voice. And that really has been replaced with a very different environment now where everything has changed to technology. So we closed the trading floor in 1996, and we actually, if you look at it, only have about 19 years of experience with technology in the trading environment. Um, so that's been since 1996 to today. So the total of the 128 years, we had open outcries the bulk of that uh, type of environment. And so with the establishment of the trading system in 1996, what really had to happen is the brokers had to move off the trading floor, go and establish their own offices, either close to the JSE building or in Cape Town or wherever they preferred. And the important thing was that they had to then establish lines connecting into the exchange. They had to also establish trading front ends, which then enabled them to trade and connect into the trading system. And they had to either use those floor traders or get other types of traders that can work with technology to execute deals in the market. So as you can imagine, that's really when the whole technology arms race started. And, and it's been around and it's been a debate really for the last 19 years, because it really depended on the, the technology that you implemented, 
the network provider you chose to use, how, do, how reliable your connection was to the exchange, how close you were located to the building in terms of how fast you could execute in the market. So this is not a new debate, and as you can see in, in, the, um, in the graphic, um, many traders have then decided to build automated trading types of functions, which is being called algorithmic trading. Um, and now that has really evolved even further with a subset of algorithmic trading being designed, which is now referred to as high-frequency trading. So, so this is, is a debate that has evolved. It's a debate that uh, probably is, is going to continue to evolve um, and just add uh, more and interesting nuances to it. And now the last bit of our, our, techno, um, our history is just looking at last year um, where we introduced the co-location site. Um, so this is now having gone full circle and pretty much back in the concept um, of an open outcry floor where all the brokers now have the opportunity to be back in the JSC's building being physically located as close as possible to the trading system. And the biggest difference between what we're offering now through co-location and the open outcry system is really that it's very important for us now to ensure that there's equal latency. So you, everyone that takes up a co-location rack um, will trade at exactly the same speed as anyone else that took up a co-location rack. So if you're located in our building, you can't be closer than anyone else and trade at a faster speed than anyone else. Which is really what was introduced, we're not the innovative ones in, in this space, this is something that was introduced in the US markets first and then evolved and moved over into the European markets, etc. Which was trying to react and respond to this concern of latency arbitrage, which is not a new concept, which is a concept that started evolving as markets became more electronic because it really depended on where you were physically located, what technology you used, and the network providers you used in terms of how fast you can execute in the markets. Whereas now with co-location, we, we, uh, we offer access to markets at exactly the same sp um, speed. So, so before I go back into high-frequency trading, I thought I'd take a little bit of a detour, and I thought co-location was going to be topical. It was mentioned in my introduction. So I just wanted to give you a bit of an overview of the, the service and what we kept in mind when we designed this service. And one of the big reasons we launched this is really to remain globally competitive. So, so we often get mentioned that we are the sole service provider in South Africa, and, and that is the reality. We are the, the only stock exchange registered at this stage. There are other applica applications in the pipeline, um, and so that, that might change in the, in the not-too-distant future. Um, but, but the reality is that our shares, um, about 60 of the top JSC-listed companies, um, are dual-listed in multiple markets internationally. So we feel we've always competed in an international context. Um, and, and particularly with US clients, UK-based clients, et cetera, they've always been at a latency disadvantage, and not just at a small latency disadvantage, a significant one. Because if you look at tra a trader sitting in the UK trading on the JSE, they've always been 2,000 times slower to trade on the JSE than anyone else that trades from South Africa. And so with us offering co-location, that offers the opportunity for an international investor to be located in our data center. That's not the only reason we launched this. This was also for Capetonian-based clients who, are, who also had a latency disadvantage um, and also for, for Joburg-based clients. Um, and so we've seen re a real mix in the take-up of co-location. Uh, we've seen a mix of local, international. We've seen uh, stockbrokers as well as their clients, technology vendors, etc., that have taken up this uh, service offering. So we launched it last year, um, and it is the fastest way of trading on the JSC markets. 
And we've configured it, as I've mentioned, so that uh, we have equal latency, so we, so we don't have any latency arbitrage. Um, and, and this is just some more details on that. We specifically designed it um, based on lessons learned from other marketplaces. So that is one of the advantages of us being South Africa. We often do follow. Um, and not necessarily lead in all regards. And this is an, a, a specific environment where we were quite proud to, to follow because we could look at how other markets designed their co-location sites and what all the contentious things were with these types of sites. And, and we could build it um, addressing some of those concerns. So one of the concerns was that uh, in some sites you could pay to be closer to the trading engine. So obviously the more you pay, the highest bidder could then be closer to the trading engine. We didn't implement it that way any one of our racks will all be equidistant away. And the way we achieve that is pretty much have a long cable that's twisted up, if you just want to imagine that, um, for, all the, for all the racks to make sure everyone has the, has the same uh, distance in terms of latency. We also do not have the concept of a, um, so we have non-exclusive hosting units uh, leasing policy. And what that really means is in other environments, some of the stock exchanges only offered co-location to their stockbrokers. We've decided, based on a lot of the criticism around that, that we'll offer it to any institution. So any, any entity can, can go, come into co-location. Um, so a technology vendor, a stockbroker, asset manager, et cetera, a data vendor. Um, and we also offered it in a, in a very different construct where you can sublet a portion of a rack. So you don't have to take up a full rack because it could be quite costly. You can actually sublease a specific portion of a rack that's uh, equivalent to the size of your types of activity that you're pushing through in the market. So we did want this to be a really cost-effective way for all market participants to pretty much come back onto the trading floor. So that was really some of the thoughts behind this. Um, and then the last thing on the slide, which is very important when we talk about the Michael Lewis book, which I've got a few slides on, so I won't disappoint you, um, is that we have offered our public data feed at exactly the same price and at exactly the same speed for all market participants, whether you're in co-location or not. So this is one of the big um, issues that have come through in the, in the uh, Flash Boys book, where the highest bidder could get the fastest data and then could front-run orders. We don't allow that in our environment. So some of the benefits, um, I've already mentioned some of these, it's just really you can trade at the fastest speed. Uh, for the brokers, it, it's, it's quite a big benefit is the cost saving. Uh, bandwidth in South Africa is expensive. Um, so if you locate it in our data center, you don't need to spend that much on bandwidth. You can trade directly from there. You also mitigate some of your risks, your dependencies on the network providers. We don't have uh, very stable network providers. Um, some of the telecom lines could go down, et cetera, and so they don't have that reliance anymore. Um, and then you could employ different trading strategies uh, while you're in co-location. It's open to all clients at an equal cost. And this is some of the speeds I've mentioned earlier. So if you're in Cape Town, you'll be 200 times slower than anyone else that trades from Joburg. Um, and internationally, you'd be 2,000 times slower. And that's some of the reasons we've launched co-location. And so that was the quick detour on co-location, getting back to how the markets have evolved and a bit of the, the history. And this is all linked to technology. I think just pinning everything and blaming it on, on one specific trading type strategy, high frequency trading, is really not fair. One just needs to look at what has technology done and how has technology evolved the trading world. Because just thinking about that, that time period, the exchange has been around for 128 years and only 19 of those years we've had electronic trading. And, uh, and technology and innovative uh, solutions and how that's evolved 
um, so drastically, not just in the trading environment, but in all other industries, is really just difficult um, for all market participants and regulators to grapple with and, and see how do we deal with that and, and how do we ensure that we have fair market uh, markets and, and offerings by all. So it's not, it's not a unique thing that we're grappling with in the trading environment. Technology is something that's evolved quite quickly in, in many other industries. Um, but some of the things particularly related to the trading environment uh, for, for technology is that markets have become more globally competitive because pretty much a, a UK-based client can now trade anywhere in the world. They don't have to trade just in London anymore. Um, there's reduced transaction times so they can trade much faster because of technology. And so one of the, the big challenges there was that the traditional sort of traders that uh, manually traded, uh, it became very challenging for them to compete in this environment because others that use technology could trade at a faster rate than them. This is just talking about human traders versus someone that used a trading uh, a, a, a technology platform. This is not even talking about algorithms and then now high frequency trading. Um, some of the pros of technology is the electronic audit trails um, and trading and orders became a lot more transparent. Markets used to be a lot more opaque. It wasn't really clear in terms of open outcry, who shouted first and who got the stocks. Um, and then we'd also have automated risk controls and we can monitor a lot of the trading behavior. Some of the other things directly and indirectly linked to electronic uh, to technology changes is this whole concept of algorithmic trading, and that's where one of the biggest debates started, um, and and then the evolution and development of dark pools, um, direct electronic access, which is really just the concept of a fund manager or a broker based in the UK that wants to trade on the JSE trading through a JSE stockbroker, they could place their uh, trading system within the, the stockbroker's uh, facilities. And through that mechanism, they can trade through direct market access. And you won't believe it, but that was a huge contentious debate in the, 10 years ago. And now it's something that's accepted by the market as market practice. Um, and now the, the co-location sites that we've seen um, being implemented uh, internationally Tick sizes becoming smaller as, as people trade more and more electronically, and then fee structures changing, and I'll talk a bit more about that when I talk about the Michael Lewis book. Um, just looking at South Africa in particular, um, we, we don't operate in a vacuum. Our shares are, are traded on global markets, so we're aware of international trends, and we track that and we do analysis of that. Um, one of the things um, I'm responsible for at the exchange is our statistics function, and so we continuously uh, track market quality metrics. Uh, like spreads and liquidity and price formation. And we've seen all of those improve over the years. So we feel quite comfortable that we are moving in the right direction. And I'll share some of those stats right towards the end so I'll try and keep you awake. Um, and then one of the other things that's also important to bear in mind in the South African environment is our surveillance capabilities because we are very unique. Um, South Africa is a self, or the JSC is a self-regulatory organization. We receive our license from the Financial Services Board, but we pretty much operate independently in terms of ensuring market um, abuse is being looked after and there's no insider trading, et cetera. So we have a very separate team, which is our surveillance team, with strict Chinese walls in place. I'm not part of that team. On the, I'm on the market side. Um, and so they look at the markets daily and they use technology in order to ensure that they regulate the market sufficiently. And, and to, to prove the excellence in terms of that, it's, it's something independent. The World Economic Forum issues a global competitiveness report every year, and the JSE uh, ranks as the top regulated exchange in the world. Not, not in South Africa, not in Africa, or in the European region, or in, 
in compared to the BRICS in the world. So that is something that's that's my our regulation team prides themselves on that. I often bump heads with them because of that, but um, it is something that's very important and that does help us with this type of debate. Because of our capabilities from a surveillance perspective, because we do mandate our brokers to use a specific system in terms of loading all of their trades and transactions. So we can see right down to each individual client level. And so our surveillance team would be able to investigate front running, et cetera, and regulators from all over the world visit them and have a look at the technology and their capabilities. And I don't know if, you've, if, if you do follow the, the, talk, the talks of regulation internationally, they're now talking in, the, in Europe about how do they create this consolidated database of being able to see the audit trails of how the trade moved from one venue to another venue. All of that information is available already in our environment and they're trying to build those systems now. Um, so that should hopefully give you some comfort in our environment. Uh, some of the things we've had to do a lot of work on is really establishing some risk management uh, type of practices. Because of the speed of, of advancement of technology, we had to look at how do we better manage risk. Uh, we don't have a separate clearinghouse in South Africa, um, so we had to look at how do we, we tackle that um, from a JSE perspective. Okay, so now um, looking at, at the uh, analysis of algorithmic trading and sort of when it came about and, and the portion of the market it makes up, um, it's really prevalent mostly in cash equities markets. It's also um, sprung up uh, quite significantly in some of the derivatives markets and it's far less uh, prevalent in fixed income markets. Um, and it really is the US that has led this space um, and Europe that has now followed and, and South Africa uh, which will be far far below down down that curve. Um, so it, it is something that's, that's not new. I mean, this graph sort of starts around 2004 and it ends in 2014. And some of the project, uh, uh, pr projections uh, that I saw for 2015 data really spoke about in cash equities environment, electronic trading, algorithmic trading is really 80% of total uh, activity in the markets. That's just the way of getting your trades executed. And so to try and define high-frequency trading um, is probably a good place to start, to just give you an overall sort of uh, framework of what are all the different types of trading activity that you get in marketplaces. So the first one, the little gray box, is just showing manual trading, which is really the traditional day trader, and he'll sit at his desk and he'll work the order in, into the market, and a very small subset of our marketplace at this stage. The big blue, uh, uh, sorry, the big green bubble is really computerized trading, and we call that computerized trading because it's not necessarily an algorithm, because the brokers might have designed a system that just automatically enters the order into the market, but the trader still potentially worked that order into the market, or he chose which mechanism the order should be entered in, into the system by. And then you really get the bucket, which is algorithmic trading. And, and how this has evolved is, is really interesting. And if you talk to some of the traders internationally, it's very interesting to see that the different types of people that are now employed by trading firms. And these are the types of mathematicians and economists and things that they started to employ on their trading desk to write these complicated mathematical strategies so that they can execute better for their end clients. And that's where algorithms really came about. And so they, they picked some guys from Harvard and, and they uh, trained them on the desk and explained markets to them and that they built the, the algorithms. High frequency trading is taking a step even further where they took those guys, the bright um, 
mathematicians and economists put them together and then also em employed some engineers that really know technology very well and some, some IT gurus to make sure that they can access the market at the, the fastest speed and they can use the best technology to get their, their uh, trades executed. And that's in sort of layman terms to try and explain to you all the different subsets of, of people in the market. So if you look at um, all these case studies, um, academic papers that have been written about high-frequency trading, and all of them trying to define it, and as I've mentioned at the conference in London in, in April this year, again, the regulators still trying to define high-frequency trading. They've been discussing it for the last three years. I'm not sure when they'll conclude to, uh, on it, because the market continues to evolve. So even this definition is outdated, but, but I'll take you through it. Um, so, so generally it says that um, high-frequency trading is where you would uh, employ trading strategies where you buy and sell uh, very quickly. And, and so that is uh, probably still relevant for, for high-frequency trading, is the speed at which you trade. But the second point, which really says that they really hold the position overnight, has actually changed quite significantly because what we've seen now is a lot of uh, the brokers are employing high-frequency trading strategies to execute for their buy-side clients. Now, buy-side clients aren't going to hold positions for a short period of time. Um, so this definition has continued to evolve, and as soon as they've defined it, it's probably the market's going to move on. And here's some, some other um, uh, attempts, I'd say, at defining high-frequency trading, is that it really was employed by proprietary trading firms. Um, and so, so this was traditionally where it sort of evolved, is the traditional day traders uh, that used to trade in the markets, there were many of them on the, on the trading floors, etc. They started to replace all of their methods of trading with algorithms, where they employed uh, these bright guys. Um, and they were making profits purely for their own book, Prop trading is, uh, is not that prevalent in the South African market anymore. Most of our brokers don't want to do prop trading because they don't want their clients to feel that there's a conflict of interest. So most of the brokers don't do pure prop trading. Um, so, so again, this definition is evolving and changing. What is remaining the same is that they're using sophisticated technology. They're using sophisticated quantitative algorithms and they're using t uh, tools and services to make sure that they can trade as fast as possible. One of the things that's also not changing is they put through a huge amount of orders in the market and they do cancel and change their orders continuously in order to get uh, discover liquidity, which is pretty much what they're trying to do, is get an, an order executed. They want to execute their trades. So it's not just messing around. They've got a pure client committed order uh, behind that and, and they're trying to get the, the trade executed. Limited holding periods, again, this is, this is probably changing and flat positions at the end of the day. A lot of high-frequency trading strategies actually hold positions for long periods. Um, so this definition doesn't necessarily hold. And then just lastly, market making and arbitrage, directional trading are the types of strategies. Arbitrage, again, just as, as a reminder, not a new concept. It's something that existed as soon as companies started dual, listings on, uh, dual listing on different marketplaces. So BHP Billiton, Anglos, the big names that we know are available to be traded on various marketplaces internationally. And if an institutional client wants to hold one of those stocks, the broker's responsibility is to try and get the best price in that stock, irrespective of where that share is list listed. Um, and so the concept of being able to, to seek that price on the different venues has been around for, for quite a while. So some of the arguments against and, and for HFT, and as I've mentioned, you find five research papers that support it and five that don't support it. So this is a debate that's probably never going to end and never be resolved. Um, but some of the things that, that are being said is that market efficiency improves. 
Okay, so, so the big caveat on this slide, though, is you have to first define HFT. So once you've defined it, then you can decide whether it's positive or negative. So this depends on how they've defined it. Um, but yeah, so you improve uh, market efficiency, it reduces trading costs, but then that debate has been used with electronic trading in general, has reduced trading costs. Um, it's narrowed spreads, and again, that debate has been used just generally for electronic trading. Participants can adopt uh, more flexibly, they can change easily in the market, uh, adapt, um, and then you carry a low risk because they square at the end of the day, but as I've mentioned, not necessarily. Some of the arguments against it, and this is more depending on the market structure. So some environments in the US didn't have specific strict market making obligations. So participants could trade in the market, and then as soon as there's an issue and there's a huge flash crash, they pull all of their orders and then there's no liquidity available in the market. So there's no firm obligations. Um, and so that is, is a real issue that some of the regulators are looking into. Um, and then another real issue is that some of the exchanges, because we're not used to that uh, concept in South Africa, but I mean, in the US, there are 90 dark pools. I mean, there's just an example of an execution venue. So you've got to route your orders to 90 different places in order to make sure you get the right price and you can execute for your clients. And so some of those venues um, really wanted to attract liquidity because they're competing against 89 other venues. They're all profit for-profit entities. And so they started paying some of the brokers to trade in their marketplaces to the extent where it became economically unviable for those brokers to trade, but they would still trade just because they're receiving order flow. And that creates a lot of noise and false uh, trading activity and false liquidity in the market. And so that was one of the issues is as soon as the exchange pays market participants to trade, and then there's some um, acquisitions that it doesn't add market depth and systems get overwhelmed. It really depends. I mean, at this stage, I think we use a third of the real system capability at the JSC. So we haven't really seen that in our environment. Um, and then there could be market abuse and some uh, systemic risk issues. And this is the real boring part. This is just giving you an idea of how we as the JSE look after markets and ensure markets um, we maintain fair markets, so I'm not going to go through all the detail on this slide. I'll maybe pick on a few concepts, but we manage markets by looking by having a market operations team, market quality focus, and market conduct. And market conduct is that regulation team I mentioned. And then the market operations, just if you look at the fourth bullet on this slide, the order input rates that we manage. So we don't allow anyone to trade in the market by pushing as many orders as they want to in the market. Some markets do, we don't. It's one of the things that we feel we need to do in order to manage that system capacity and also just manage fair markets. Um, so we actually limit the brokers in terms of the number of orders that you can push through in the system. And as you can imagine, we're being challenged on this continuously. We're having meetings continuously with some of the brokers that want to push more orders through in the system. And for us, this really is something that we need to consider in this big um, debate of HFT, because we don't want to create a marketplace where there's just a lot of noise and not a lot of trades happening. Um, and then from a market quality perspective, I just wanted to point out the, the last bullet, strengthening uh, preventative controls. We have a concept called circuit breakers in our environment, which really helps with market quality. And as you guys recall, when, when the flash crash happened, many exchanges actually came out and, and said, well, they didn't have circuit breakers in place, and that was part of the issue. And what a circuit breaker really is, is if you've moved the price a certain percentage away from the previous price, the market actually goes into an auction period where everyone in the market 
trading isn't halted, but there's a period where everyone in the market can just sort of take a breath, step back and look, is that the real price? Will we trade at this price? They can amend their orders. They can then continue trading. Um, another way of a circuit breaker is that we have a circuit breaker for the previous day's price. So if there's a significant change in the price compared to the previous day's price, again, we invoke a volatility auction, which sort of gives the, the market a breathing time to have a look and, 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 and see if they want to execute the trade. Um, and so, so we were actually, when the flash crash happened, interviewed by quite a lot of international journalists about our circuit breaker capabilities and, and why did we implement that. And I think we just implemented it because the London Stock Exchange trading system that we employed had it built into it. Um, but, but in retrospect, really happy that we did decide to do that and it helped uh, maintain fair marketplaces during that period. Market conduct, um, as I've mentioned, that regulation team, just the third bullet on the slide, We've built technology for them so that they have real-time alerts. They've got certain things they watch out for, and those alerts, wouldn't they make them aware of any um, suspicious behavior in the market, and they then investigate that. So those are some of the things that we do to, to protect the market. Now let's get into the more fun part of the discussion, um, which is the Flash Boys book. So as you're aware, um, and, and this is not a summary of the book. This is just our high-level take on, on some of the key things that were discussed in the book. So the first one was really that they were saying that markets, and, and they were mainly talking about the US markets, are rigged, and that the villains really are these high-frequency trading firms, and that some of the exchanges were also uh, responsible, and, and it really exploited the fragmented nature of the US market. So as I've mentioned, there are 90 dark pools in the US. There are far more exchanges. There are many execution venues. It's quite challenging to get your order done. Um, and that's just what's happened in that marketplace because of the way that their regulatory structure works. You can have multiple exchange um, uh, trading venues. So some of the things that, that the book talks about is that HFT firms were front-running ordinary investors. Um, and, and that's a debate that, that one can have for, for quite a long time because what is front-running? In a regulatory context, front-running is defined as someone that's trading in the market that has information about a client's order before that order has executed. And so that's in the old days when the broker's trading desks weren't separated from their prop desks. And the institutional trading desk would get the order, and I'm very sorry to say, but this, this is unfortunately what did happen, is they would tell their prop desk that this is the order that I've got, and the prop desk would quickly go buy the stock, push the price up, and this is why front-running rules have been implemented, is that is now illegal, and that's why pro most brokers have, have closed down their prop desks. Um, and if a broker does have a prop desk, they make sure that all the legalities are in place, the trading systems are separate, the people have different reporting lines, they sit in different buildings in different cities, anyway. So, so brokers have really taken it very fast step to make sure that they can't be accused of front-running their client orders because as you can imagine they would lose a lot of business now if they did that. Um, so, so that's just referring to front-running. Front the other two concepts are very real issues um, which is really the conflict of interest that the brokers had because the exchanges were paying them to route orders to their market. So as I've mentioned some of the exchanges did that because they're competing with 90 other exchanges and they want to get some of that flow. The other one was the conflict of interest the exchanges had because HFT firms could pay in order to get the fastest data. And so that's one of the reasons we've made sure that we offer the data at the same speed to everyone and the same price. Um, because that was one of the issues, as the exchanges said, the highest bidder can get the fastest data. Um, and that caused unequal uh, playing fields. 
Um, and really the, the main issue in the book is it's saying that investors were, the, at the end of the day, the ones that paid all of these costs. And the reality is that if exchanges paid for liquidity flow and they paid brokers to, to execute in their markets and HFT firms could buy data at a faster rate, then, then yes, there, there were some real issues or there are some real issues in that environment. And a lot of those are being addressed. The SEC is implementing a lot of regulatory standards um, to address that. Um, and I think the third bullet on this slide is probably just the important one, is really that speed in of itself is not an issue. Electronic trading has been around in our environment for the last 19 years, in the US and UK environments for many more, and it's something that we just need to know, how do we deal with electronic trading and how do we adapt to that and what are the rules of engagement and what do we need to put in place to protect the marketplace. Um, and the fourth bullet is really that market participants are always going to try and employ more sophisticated technology because they are competing with each other. The stockbrokers are competing for order flow from institutions, so they're going to try and make sure that their algorithms are better. They can execute at a better price. They can get the deal done faster, um, etc. So, so it's a concept that's that's not going to um, th that's not uh, going to go away, unfortunately. Um, just a few last things why South Africa is quite different to other marketplaces. Um, we only allow authorized users to trade in our market. So we have very strict rules, as I've mentioned, best regulated exchange. This is one of the things where it, it can get a bit of a disadvantage, not always a benefit, is that we are very strict in terms of who can be a stockbroker and who can trade in the market. And we also only allow you to trade in our central order book. And if you want to trade outside of the central order book, you have to meet very strict trade reporting rules. So that's helped us maintain and keep all of the liquidity in one environment. Um, and some of the other things is the public market data feed. I've mentioned that already. And that uh, we don't have any billing models where we pay people to trade. Uh, people pay us. Um, and we treat everyone fairly in terms of co-location, so equal access to the markets. Um, and the surveillance capabilities. We also don't currently have the concept of a dark pool in, in our environment. Then I've included some, some information on regulation in, in Europe as well as the US. If you want to have a look, I think they are sharing the slides. And then lastly, this is the, the more fun side, is just some of the st uh, statistics. So for the not that technical people, this is orders statistics. So this is how many orders have been pushed through in the, in, into the market and not necessarily trades that were executed. And you can see the spike in 2012. That's when we moved over from the trade elect trading system, which was provided by the London Stock Exchange, to Millennium IT, uh, which is a trading system developed by a Sri Lankan-based firm. Um, and really uh, a system that was 400 times faster, which everyone in the market benefited from. So you can see the orders increased. But since we've implemented co-location, we've actually seen the amount of order flow dropping off, as you can see uh, from early or mid-2014, the orders have dropped off. So the guys have tested their algos and they've now uh, got to a more reasonable level of orders being pushed through. Order to trade ratios, the amount of orders that you had to put through in order to execute your trades, we saw that spike in 2012 again when we moved over to the new trading system. And very interesting enough, we, we didn't expect this to happen, but we've seen our order to trade ratio actually drop off back to levels of 2009, um, which really has about 10 orders that you need to push through in the market to get one trade executed, which is a very healthy statistical measure, which sort of bears into question whether there are real, you know, fast, uh, high frequency trading type al algorithms in our market, because the stats doesn't really show it. Um, 
This is showing the amount of uh, central order book trading versus off book trading. Um, again, a healthy statistic where we've seen central order book trading increasing from 80% to 90% of total trading activity. Off book trading is just when you negotiate off market, um, and central order book is trading in, in the marketplace. And then the interesting slide as well is just the spreads um, in terms of bid-ask spreads for top 40 stocks. And you can see the level of all share after the top 40 index and where that's ran off to. Um, but from a JSE perspective, the, the spreads and how wide or narrow those spreads are are very important to us. You can see the global financial crisis in 2008 where spreads really widened significantly. Um, but then since then, with, with us introducing various technology system upgrades, we've seen the spreads narrow. Um, so, so this gives an indication of, of more liquidity in the market um, and, and being able to execute at a better price. Just one last thing on the statistics side um, is that everyone asks us how much high frequency trading do you have, how much algorithmic trading do you have. The, the honest answer to that is you can't determine that statistic because a trader would sit and he would use an algorithm and then he would trade manually and then he would use an algorithm and then he would trade manually so it's not like you either or you're often a combination of both um, so even if they gave us the flags the statistics would be wrong so what we did is we uh, we created a, a statistic so that we can at least give media and, and market participants an answer which is electronic trading which is why it's got that little star and lots of uh, um, definitions linked to it because this is a made-up uh, statistics where we really looked at the amount of orders that, be, that are being pushed through in the market and if it is more than 110,000 orders we would then include that in what we call electronic trading and that uh, statistic has changed from around 50 55 percent to now about 60 65 percent over the last two or three years um, and has been fairly uh, stable, so we haven't seen a significant increase in that. But this is just giving an indication of people that electronically trade. So it could be order entry applications, algorithms, high-frequency trading. Direct market access, I've mentioned, is, is that brokers can offer their clients to trade directly, put their trading systems in their offices. That's been around 50% for the last three or four years. And then co-location, this is just everyone that's moved all of their technology into our building. This is how much they are contributing to the total market. So this isn't necessarily new participation. This is just some of the people that have moved all of their technology into our building and are not now trading from the new trading floor, the, the, the co-location trading floor. Um, and then retail and foreign trading at about 20. And this is really the last uh, slide. Um, I don't think any discussion about co-location uh, co and high-frequency trading or anything would be complete um, if we, from an exchange's perspective, don't um, put on the table that we really do think we need to meet the, the um, needs of very diverse market participants, because we're very aware of that. We, we deal with trustees and pension funds, and then we deal with um, actuarial society and, and CFAs and, and um, lots of different market participants, um, prop trading firms, banks that have been ridiculed a bit earlier today, but everyone trades in the markets, the life companies, etc. And everyone has different objectives and different needs. And so we have developed some uh, functional enhancements, and I won't go through the detail of this, 
but really to try and address the needs of all of those diverse market participants. Um, so we have introduced just, I'll pick on one, which is our block trade rules we've changed. The, the asset managers uh, through ASISA have really lobbied us and, and discussed with us that they need a mechanism in order to negotiate a large block off market. And we've addressed that and we've changed some of the rules around that. And we've seen about a three times increase in our block trades being used. Um, so we are open to those types of discussions and we continuously in debates and, and discussions with the CISA about what are the things we can offer to make sure that the marketplace has functionality that meets all the client's needs. So that's my bit of just uh, marketing. <laughs> so I don't know if there were any questions. I think we've ran a bit out of time. but um, I'm sure there's still time for some questions. Yeah. Okay, so I suppose maybe I'll ask one from my side. So yeah. um, uh, my memory's a bit fuzzy, but I remember one thing from um, Michael Lewis's book was that in order for high-frequency trading to work, um, you need more than one exchange. Um, the, the, the person trading, you know, puts their order into one exchange, and then the high-frequency trader sees that order and quickly runs ahead of that trade to the other, you know, to the other exchanges. How, how does that apply in South Africa when we've got only one exchange? Yeah. So, so that's a form of uh, predatory high-frequency trading. Um, and that's a bad type of high-frequency trading, is, is where you've got multiple venues and the high-frequency trading firm, because the public market data is available for that other exchange before it was available for the, the first exchange, he could then arbitrage between those two and pretty much engage in what is defined as predatory high-frequency trading, and that's something in the U.S. that they're actually going to deem as illegal and they're going to change that market practice. Um, high-frequency trading in, in the South African construct, um, you can still use because that's how you use algorithms. It's just pretty much an algorithm that is trading faster than other algorithms. Um, so, so you don't have to you do arbitrage as an example. Arbitrage can also be done because you can trade between JSE, US, and UK in terms of the dual-listed stocks. Um, but, but employing high-frequency trading is going to be quite challenging because we, we base at the tippy pint of, of Africa, which is quite far away, so it's quite a big latency. But, but you can use it in our environment to, to possibly arbitrage between ETFs and the stocks that are listed or the um, index futures contracts and the underlying shares that are listed. Great. Thank you. Anyone with a question? Okay. Well, in that case, Nicola, thank you very much. I uh, certainly found it very fascinating. Thank you very, very much uh, for your time. Sure. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. I've just, I've just been asked to um, bring the day to a close by providing a brief summary of events, which is quite a challenge given the a diverse range of speakers that we, we saw today. Um, I think what, what we can perhaps say, sticking to the theme, is that we've heard a lot of new normals, about new normals being created across industries and asset classes. Um, unfortunately, we've, we've heard quite a bit of, of, in terms of the challenges that faces, face us in South Africa. But I think luckily we know as, as actuaries that with, with challenge often comes opportunity. And as a profession, we're perhaps best trained to, to, to manage the risks that do come with challenges and opportunities that we face in this country. Um, I do also just want to thank our speakers again, firstly. Um, I think you'll agree with me that the standard of the presentations that we saw today uh, were generally excellent. Um, and then, of course, I, I, I do need to thank, thank Hildegard Wilson, the Vet von der Spey, 
and Gavin Finch. Um, I think the program that they've managed to put together today has been excellent for the second year in a row, uh, especially considering that, that the older guard did this as a, as a volunteer in addition to her day job. So I think she deserves a big round of applause.